open up your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be in verse 14. text is Ephesians 4, verse 14, but when you get there, let's just to kind of review what we went over, let's just start reading in verse 11, and we'll end on verse 14 together. Paul says this, and he, speaking about Jesus, he personally gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists some pastors and teachers for the training of the saints in the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into a mature man with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children, tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. This is God's Word. Let's pray for it. God, we just want to do what we're used to doing on these Sundays, on these Sunday mornings, is to thank you for your Word, for in that truth we recognize that God has spoken to sinners. It is an act of your grace that you would speak at all. It is an act of grace that you would remove yourself from privacy to speak to people who could not reach you. And Lord, some of these verses that we have gone through are very cheery and warm, and this one is not. We choose to come before you and say, Lord, and and confess with one another that every word that you speak to the church is for our ultimate joy and for your glory. And so I pray that you would soften our hearts to receive what you have to say to the church today. I pray that it would be your Holy Spirit speaking to the church and not a man. That you would open up our eyes to see the scriptures in such a way that it would open our eyes to see Christ in all of His beauty and all of His glory, that we would be so compelled to follow after You in suffering, in affluence, in prosperity, in discomfort. We say together as a church that You alone are the greatest treasury that the universe has ever known. And I pray that our hearts would skip a beat to follow You today. Let your words speak loudly into our hearts. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. The title of the sermon this morning is called, Don't Be Influenced by Bad Constituents. When, uh, for those of you that were here in the week prior, when we went over verse 13, we learned together, uh, I believe G spoke on verse 13, we learned last week that we are called to grow in this knowledge of God that can be measured by a stature, measured by Christ's fullness, that we are to reach a unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, and that growth is not just some It's not just some theoretical abstract thing like, oh, I'm growing in the Lord today, but it's something that could be measured by the fullness of Christ, that when we look at Christ, knowing that we cannot attain perfection in this life, we should be, as Paul would say, still moving towards that. I'm spending my life to be spent 
I'll never be perfect in this life, but I, I, I move forward towards that common goal until that one day when I will be glorified in Christ Jesus. Our, our measurement for maturity is Christ's fullness. But when Paul ends that, that sentence, he doesn't end his train of thought. When he goes into verse 14, he continues that train of thought by showing us a description of Christian maturity by showing us the other alternative, what it means to be immature as a Christian. He contrasts a mature man or a mature person with little children. Now, you got to know that he's not speaking about the non-believer right here. Paul never uses the term little children or immaturity to speak an, about a non-believer. Non-believers are by nature not mature or immature. Uh, he would say in his typical way of saying in Ephesians 1 that those who are not born of the Spirit are children of wrath. They're not neither mature or immature. They are in a, an entirely different kingdom. He uses immaturity to speak of the new convert, that person who doesn't know all of the ins and outs of theology, doesn't know all the right questions and answers, doesn't know anything maybe, but knows just enough that their, their faith has sparked in them a flame and they've looked at Jesus and they say, you and you alone for my salvation. I don't know the justification and the sanctification and all the ins and outs and the, even the books of the Bible, but I know one thing, that is what I want in this life and in the one to come. And so that is a natural course for any little child. It's not even a bad thing. Children are immature. And he's speaking to new converts, probably, that are immature in their faith. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, I can attest to this with my daughter, Abby, who's, I think, uh, right now is two months old. And she's cute, man. <laughs> She'll mess you up. And the funny thing about her, and most of you know because you have children, but it, she's two months old, she can't do anything. The things that she can do, I can count on one hand. She can eat, she can smile, she can laugh. Well, I guess smiling and laughing, so that's two things. She can scream, she can sleep, and she can do something else. So five things. My daughter can only do five things in this life. But that's a normal thing for an infant, right? It's not like I come up to Abby and I'm like, oh, you've been alive for eight weeks already. Why aren't you taking AP classes by now? <laughs> like, no way. I'm just, just, just caught up in my daughter. Like, I love your five things. <laughs> it's a natural thing. It's, it's not a bad thing. And it's not a bad thing for... A new convert to not know anything. That's not the point of what Paul is saying. But it is bad if you stay that way. My daughter were to turn 16 one day and all she could do is sleep and eat and stay on the couch and not function. Well, that would be weird. So Paul would say the same thing. It's, it's natural for the new believer to not know anything about spiritual things. But there comes a point in time, like right away, where you must start growing. And if you don't grow... Something is wrong. Paul begins to describe little children, uh, speaking about uh, the person who does not mature as a person who is susceptible to being tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching. Now he's starting to use this uh, oceanic imagery about storms and a, a 
particularly a vessel that is so caught up in the weather and in the storms that they are easily influenced by, by the gale, by the hurricane, by that which is just traumatizing their vessel. There's literally nothing you could do about it but let it uh, blow over and hope that you don't capsize in some of those instances. And so in the same way, the, the person that does not grow, there's no guilt in being a new convert and not knowing a lot, but if you do not uh, or excuse me, not growing uh, in the fullness of Christ, but to stay there makes you easily susceptible and easily influenced by every wind of teaching. Another w- uh, way to describe every wind of teaching is what we commonly might hear as a heresy. Now, we sometimes throw around words like heresy just for anything that we disagree with. A heresy is not something that you disagree with. Right? You don't do that. <laughs> Heretical. A heresy, at least in Paul's mind, is not just a petty disagreement. That's just a disagreement. This is a false teaching that specifically dilutes the power of the gospel. Once you've crossed over into that, you're in dangerous ground. Paul is saying that the Christian who does not grow or uh, fails to grow is susceptible to being easily influenced by all sorts of false teachings that dilute the power of the gospel. And he begins to describe how those certain teachings come. They come by human cunning. This word is, uh, describes literally dice playing. Uh, Paul isn't throwing card playing or board games under the bus. He's uh, specifically speaking about people who would use uh, dice uh, perhaps that were loaded or that use trickery in their gambling to trick others to get their money. He's speaking about that type of human cunning that is infiltrating the way they teach heresies that dilute the gospel in order that those who are immature in their faith will be susceptible to. Speaking about hucksters, deceptive uh, wolves, whose goal is to divide and conquer those who don't know any better with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. Paul is speaking and pushing for a maturity to take place instantly. Or if you've been a Christian your entire life, to take up that that maturity right now, to not stay stagnant, to not grow weary in moving forward. But he's, he's also pushing for unity. You see, he spoke about the mature person. He specifically said a mature man, and he's talking about a church. He's saying that when there is that maturity in a, a church that is growing together, there is a maturity in, uh, in, in that sense of unity. It is one corporate body. Contrast that with little children. That's what happens when a church is not growing in the things of God, when they are not being conformed to the person of Jesus Christ, in contrast to one body, they become little children. They lose a sense of unity. So what Paul is teaching and pushing for is Christian maturity and Christian unity. You see, it's not even bad that an infant doesn't even know their head from their toe. It's not even bad that Abby doesn't know like how to feed herself or take care of herself or how to do all of those things. It's not bad that a baby can't even function in life because it's assumed that that baby will be a part of a functioning home. 
And in that home will be a family that will come around that baby, that infant, that toddler, and there will be corporate growth. People will feed that child. They will clothe and clean that child. There will be a sense of mutual growth in a family structure. And that is how Paul describes the body of Christ. People will get saved. They won't know their head from their toe. And that is the natural life course for Christians is to immerse themselves in the body of Christ and begin to grow in Christ together. It's only unnatural when you begin to pull away and abstain from growth in community. In fact, it's more than unnatural. In this case, it's dangerous. What Paul is saying in verse 14, is that if you ain't growing in the gospel together, you're easily influenced by counterfeit gospels. You might say, well, there's an easy fix for that. I will just immerse myself in books and radio and Christian television and all sorts of godly activity. I will simply immerse myself in good things. It's a little more complicated than that recent book came out by a, an author by the name of Ross Dudat, uh, an opinion editor for the New York Times, who wrote a book charting America's spiritual collapse. And he wrote that an interesting uh, dichotomy existed between two groups of people, spiritual collapse, excuse me, in which the religious often were blaming the atheists for their unbelief, but the atheists were blaming the religious people for their belief. Ross that would make the argument in his book, which I highly recommend. He said it's actually neither of those. He said America's problem isn't too much religion, nor is our problem too little religion. Our problem is bad religion. The slow motion collapse of traditional Christianity and the rise of a variety of destructive, here it is, pseudo-Christianities in its place, a.k.a. counterfeit gospels. Those things which carry the appearance or the shell of some form of truth, but deny its central tenets and its power thereof. I would ask you, do you know of or do you experience or do you think that we in our culture are affected by counterfeit gospels today? The funny thing about a statement like this is that we are sometimes prone to look for the costume-wearing, makeup-wearing, crazy, charismatic freak job that just tries to wreak havoc on the church, but it's a lot more subtle than that. In 2005, a couple sociologists, one by the name of Christian Smith and Melinda Denton, undertook this naturally, uh, excuse me, nationally representative study of the religion and spirituality of teenagers. They did this in order to provide a distinctive window through which to observe and assess our country's religion as a whole. So we're going to study the younger people to get a gauge for the religion of our country as a whole. What they found was startling. Contrary to popular opinion, Teens are actually very open to faith and religion. On the downside, they're just not very serious about it. We are okay with spirituality and faith. We just are not serious enough about it to figure out what is true and what is not. Because they've been raised in religious backgrounds, for example, 
they may grow up with it almost as being a type of background noise that's kind of just present. It's just there, but it's not important enough to grow in and learn in and soak up, much less conform our lives to. The result, these two authors would say, actually spans. It's not limited to one church or denomination. This uh, spans many denominations, geography, races, social economic backgrounds. The result, they would have to come to this conclusion in which they would come up with another title for the religious tenor of our culture today. They would call it therapeutic moralistic deism. A hybrid of different ways of thinking about God. One, they described our culture's religion as moralistic because we try hard so that God will reward us. They described it as therapeutic because we want God to make us feel better about ourselves. They also described it as deism because God might intervene uh, when we need Him, but more or less, He usually just stands out of the way and lets us live our lives And he definitely doesn't call us to repentance or require anything of us. As a result of this, the author Christian Smith would write, The language and therefore experience of Trinity, holiness, sin, things like grace, justification, sanctification, church, uh, Eucharist, or the sacraments, heaven and hell, appear among most Christian teenagers in the United States at the very least to be, listen to this, supplanted by the language of happiness, niceness, and an earned heavenly reward. You want to know what our culture thinks about religion? Well, we're very religious. Our religion is that of happiness, niceness, and an earned heavenly reward. The tenor of our culture is a shell of Christianity. The inside, gutted, supplanted by a language of feeling good about ourselves. We can certainly see that research in tangible form in two rather gutless forms of pseudo-Christianity today. One of them I'll simply describe as religious relativism. If it sounds broad, vague, and ambiguous, it's because it is broad, vague, and ambiguous. It is that doctrine, that belief system that says that knowledge and truth and morality exist in relation to culture and society and historical context, but it's not absolute. There are no absolute truths. There's no absolute way to live. It's all just kind of relative to your experience. Whether it's New Age, back in the 80s, or New Thought, or Higher Thought, or whatever label it's adopted, it is the religious message with the most currency in American popular culture, perhaps seen best in books like Eat, Love, Pray, championed by authors like Deepak Chopra and Eckhart Tolle. Whoever seems to don it at the time, it is that thing described by many as spiritual but not religious. And its ultimate aim is to make a god out of the worshiper. Because that individual worshiper is now seen as a god in and of himself or herself, These are often critical towards anything that smacks of authority, whether it's the Bible or the church. And this type of belief can easily take root in the therapeutic, deistic culture that we see in our culture today. But that's not all. Think about prosperity theology. 
Some would call it prosperity gospel. I refuse it to call it a gospel at all, for it is not good news. In this sense of belief, Christians are often entitled to, they believe that they are entitled to and can even control material wealth and healing by the power of their words and faith. It's a metaphysics religion. As a result, proponents of this theology teach their followers in things like positive speech and the power of words and obviously making financial donations which God will return to you a hundredfold. In this type of theology, God is nothing more than a lackey who does the bidding of those who know how to control him, while in religious relativism, he is relegated to a butler. In all of these, God is brought down lower and humanity is elevated beyond. If religious relativism is known for the therapeutic and deistic traits, prosperity theology is known for its moralism. This was my upbringing for the first 16 years of my life. I remember when I was a teenager being brought into a church up north to be taught exclusively about how to control with my words and faith uh, the amount of money that God would pour into my life. We never opened up the Bible. We never heard about the gospel. We instead learned about how to control our lives through positive speaking and faith. The upbringing that I was familiar with was a a bit of an extreme form. In one church service, the pastor asked Myro to stand up. He prayed for the first guy. Uh, Presumably, something came upon that person, and the entire row fell like dominoes. I didn't feel the experience of the Holy Spirit upon me. I fell because a 200-pounder fell on me. (laughs) But that guy wasn't done. He told me to stand up, and he proceeded to pray for me, and he began to laugh hysterically, and oh, the second time, I felt something. I don't know what else to describe it, because I know it wasn't the Lord. If Christ is not being preached in a setting such as that, that man's name was Kenneth Hagin Sr., and the extremities and the gross excesses and the -the over-the-top manipulations of the gospel that I saw growing up in my first two decades had to be removed from me by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that eventually happened. And when I was able to step back and say, "I I can't believe I was so duped by that, I began to attribute it to the fact that perhaps it's because I grew up, that's all I ever knew. Maybe I was brainwashed. Thankfully, nobody else will get torn from this. It's, it's, it's something that's on the margins. My, my peers will never be fooled by such a theology. Thank God for that. Thank God that I was one of the only foolish ones. I was wrong. As I grew older, I began to see that very same thing begin to take on a different form. Bad theology began to adjust its face to fit to culture. Gone were the handmade bespoke suits and the Rolls Royces. Gone were the excessive, bold, uh, unadulterated uh, requests for money so that God might bless you. And in came a slightly more palpable version of that. Instead of 
obnoxious claims to control God, it began to find its way seeping into practical things like how to manage your finances and how to uh, live your life in a, a family and how to arrange your business. And it began to take on a bit of a more palpable, understandable, and comfortable consumeristic approach. To my horror, I began to see books on the shelf with titles such as Your Best Life Now, Seven Steps to Living at Your Full Potential. And as I began to read the literature, I saw in this form of religion something that was a little more easy to swallow. Gone were the excesses, gone was all the manipulation, but underneath it was the same thing I had grown up for my entire life. Joel Osteen, in the beginning of his New York best-selling book, writes, Our words are vital in bringing our dreams to pass. It's not enough to simply see it by faith or in your imagination. You have to begin speaking words of faith over your life. Your words have enormous creative power. The moment you speak something out, you give birth to it. This is a spiritual principle, and it works with what you are saying, whether it is bad or good, positive or negative. As I begin to look back, I notice that some of these same false teachings that have decimated the lives of undiscerning Christians and my own have not disappeared on the horizon of spiritual trends. They have simply adjusted to fit the times. And like a virus, they have replicated and multiplied and taken over within the body of Christ. That's what a real heresy does. Surprisingly, many adherents to some of these ways of, 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 of thinking and theology are genuine God-fearing Christians. Those who have been captivated by such things, by counterfeit gospels, are being led astray because Jesus is not at the end of those theologies. Some of you at this point are looking at your clocks and saying to me in your head, this is extremely depressing. You came to church to be inspired. Why are you talking about false teachings? Why don't you change gears and talk, you know, like about unity or warm, fuzzy things or... Grace, I loved your sermons on grace. Why don't you talk about grace? <laughs> I am talking about grace. It is the grace of God to speak truth into the lives of sinners and the unrepentant and even the Christian who could be led astray apart from the Word of God in our lives. It is the grace of God to speak. It is the grace of God to shepherd. It is the grace of God to say, this way shall you go and not these other ways. It is the grace of God to say, you can't go this right way. You must require and have in you the power of the living God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the grace of God to say to the people that He loves the truth and not that which tickles their ears only. Paul said to the pastors in the church at Ephesus, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. You, teachers, pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. 
You didn't obtain it, Chris Lazo. He obtained it with his own blood. You better watch yourself. Don't go tickling people's ears with what they want to hear. I've told you what to say. And I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Just what are you trying to accomplish, Paul? I am trying to make little babies grow into full-grown adults so that they will not be tossed about by any regurgitated garbage that falls into their laps, so that they will not depend on a supposed authority in the pulpit to tell them what is right. They will have eaten so much they know what tastes good. And they will be able to tell a full course meal from a poison. So that we will be able to say to the huckster that comes our way, when they reply, oh, you want your best life now? No, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave his life up for me. The economy is broken. You ain't got nothing. How is it that you are still maintaining your joy? I have learned to be content in every circumstance. I have been rich. I have been poor. I have eaten a lot of food. I have been starving. And I have discovered the secret. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Okay. No, you all ain't clapping for me. I'm an idiot. <laughs> Perhaps some of you would say, okay, 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 okay. I got it. Stay away from TBN. <laughs> Did you really need 40 minutes of my time to tell me that? Yes. Listen, my intent wasn't to bring up an exhaustive list of bad theology. If I were to do that, we would be here for days. My intent was to show you a couple out of hundreds. To show you that through many of them is a common wind of teaching that pulsates through all of them, seemingly, like a fine thread. They all seem to have one thing in common consumerism. You want to know what the wind of teaching of our day in Western Christianity is? It's not the crazy gurus with makeup and capes that are flying around on top of buildings looking for comets. The most dangerous wind of teaching in our day is our own consumerism. It is the one that we least likely expect or suspect, and it is the most dangerous because we have it on our doorstep and in our own living rooms. And we live in a culture that is consumeristic. And I'm not talking about economical consumerism. I don't even care about that. I'm talking about the church being in the world, the boat being in the water, and the church letting the water into the boat. When Paul said, 
do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. I'm talking about when Jesus instructed us to be in the world, but not of it. And we combat religious consumerism. We combat the spirit of the age, these common winds of teaching, by reaching unity with each other in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son. And Paul says that's measured by Christ's fullness. Well, how could we measure whether we're growing together in the faith? Well, we would say, according to, uh, uh, to, in contrast to consumerism, are we as a church growing in joyful sacrifice and surrender, which is the opposite of the spirit of the age? Are we growing in joyful sacrifice and surrender? Are we maturing as a body? We are entrenched in a culture of consumeristic idols. But how are we doing, church? Are we just kind of doing a doggy paddle as the waves crash against us as they are? Or are we fighting against the current as if our lives depended on it? Fighting against the current for the joy of the Lord is our strength. I think if we were to look at the life of the church, we'd have to look at two things. Because the church takes form in two ways. We're gathered, right? This is a gathering of the church. But this isn't the only way the church exists. The church isn't four walls and a building. It's a group of people that have been saved. That gather, share their lives together. So the church gathers and the church scatters. How are we doing when we gather and scatter? I would say we're growing in worship. We're repenting in worship of our sin. We're uh, being healed by God in these times of intimacy. We're learning to uh, stiff-arm religiosity and chase after the presence of Jesus. And we're teaching others how to do the same. We're growing in worship. We're growing in prayer. Our prayer meetings are stinking bumping, man. That is one of the least consumeristic things on earth. And by the grace of God, people are showing up at 6, 7 in the morning to grow and to pray for one another. Our men's ministry is bigger and, and deeper and gnarlier than it's ever been. Leaders being raised up, hearts being softened, marriages being changed and repaired. Don't even get me started on the women's ministry. 200 plus women gathering at all three campuses going deep in theology. Don't ever get in a Facebook argument with a woman at reality. They'll mess you up. <laughs> but we're also growing in a scattered sense by the glory of God, uh, for the glory of God and by His grace. I can see that in mission. Our people, we are doing life together outside of just programs and corporate assembly. We're gathering in community groups, 450 people in community groups sharing lives to get, uh, their life together in transparency and community and unity and in love on mission in their neighborhoods, new leaders, young leaders being raised out of that, I would say we're doing great. I would also say if our measurement is to grow in the fullness of Christ, we would have to look at the fullness of Christ to measure whether we're growing fully. And if we're being honest, there's always areas that we're not. These may seem very trifling, but for me, it's one of the only tangible forms that I can go on, and so I hope this helps. Things like volunteering. 
or just serving when there's nothing, you know, at the end of the day for you, like food or community. A lot of campuses are doing great at volunteering. Some of them are not. One thing that is very clear, which is always a hard thing to bring up, but Jesus brought it up a lot, is giving and generosity. That has gone down at all three campuses. And when I say down, I don't mean it's fluctuated. I mean, there has been a 42% reduction in the number of people who worship God in their giving. That's over 1,000 people in one year. I don't know if it's because Britt left and I started preaching. And I don't even want to make an interpretation off of that because I don't know people's hearts. Maybe a thousand people all spontaneously thought, you know what, I'm going to worship God with my finances and give to the homeless. Maybe everybody is doing that. And I would love for that to be true. But I do want to throw this before you to ask you to look inside your own heart and to ask yourself this question. Does it seem like we're growing in all the things that are fun? You know, all of these things can be sacrificial. Worship is supposed to be sacrificial, but it can also be fun. Community groups can be an act of self-sacrifice, but you can also get community and friends and a lot of good food out of it. We can twist a lot of those things to be simply good experiences. It's hard to honor God with your money because you don't get a dang thing out of it. I want to ask you to consider this honestly. Does it look like we as a church are growing in all the fun things, but not in the things that require self-denial? Sadly, that would not be less than normal for Christians in our consumeristic culture. Scott McConnell, director of Lifeway Research, wrote that a survey they conducted recently revealed that 64% of churchgoers agree with the statement that a Christian must learn to deny himself or herself in order to serve Christ, meaning 19% of churchgoers disagree, meaning one out of five churchgoers in our culture do not think that self-denial is a part of Christian living. If this is true of us, and I don't know if it is, Pray, seek the Lord. If it is true that we're growing in good experiences but not in self-denial, then church, we are not growing at all. And there are far more things than finances. That just seems to be the one that rears its ugly head first. Our marriages, our time, our resources... If we're growing in only the good things and not in self-denial, we are not growing as a church. We are being blown about by the wind of consumerism. And you see, this is more than just about showing up one Sunday and, oh, I'll, I'll help stack chairs. Or, you know what, today I'll just throw a buck in, or, or ten bucks or whatever. It's more than just changing your behavior. This is an issue of the heart which makes it more extreme than we realize. Because God doesn't just want a behavior modification. He doesn't just want you to serve in your community group. He doesn't just want you to bring chicken casserole to your comm group one Wednesday night. He wants everything. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, 
take up his cross and follow me. Normal Christianity is a radical call to self-denial. Anything else you've been taught in this life is a lie. And it will destroy your spirituality. And at some point, if that's something that we agree with, we must come to a place where we recognize that Christianity is not a game. It is more than just showing up to self-actualize and find myself. You'll find yourself when you find God. Christianity exists as the hope of the world because someone had to die, and now he bids you to come die with him. So don't, my friends, be led astray as I have been by consumeristic Christianity. The most abysmal part about consumeristic religion is that it rips you off from enjoying Jesus in every aspect of your life. And it sounds so counterintuitive, right? But Jesus said, those who want to find their life will lose it. Those who lose it for my sake will find it. He would give a parable in Matthew 13, 44, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells everything he has and buys that field. You know what Jesus was saying? He said, the person who has discovered Jesus can find no earthly replacement to compare to it. That doesn't mean you have to be a hermit. That doesn't mean that it's bad to be rich or wealthy. It doesn't mean it's bad to have an iPhone. It doesn't mean that it's bad to have a nice house or it's bad to have certain things. It means that your heart has been radically changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ so that your heart is not wrapped around such things. For the Christian who believes and says that Christ is their ultimate treasure, you can have money, but your heart holds on to it less tightly. You know what that does? It makes you more generous to the people around you. For the person who Jesus is their ultimate satisfaction, it causes you to seek satisfaction and approval in nobody else. You know what that allows you to do? To go to the person that annoys you in their brokenness and love on them with nothing in return. For that is your joy. When Jesus is your savior, you want to serve others in the way that he has served you. And don't you know, Christian, you've been served. (laughs) When Jesus, in his wealth, became impoverished so that those in their poverty might be made rich in righteousness. These things must be born from above. Our eyes need to see them, behold them, and be enraptured by them. You can't just leave this building and be like, yeah, that was totally true and right on. You know what? I'm just going to do something better. I'm just going to give more to people. I'm just going to help as many people as I can. I'm just going to sing louder. I'm just going to be a better Christian. You're just going to revert to what everybody else has been telling you. Just do more. Be a consumer. Be legalistic. Be moralistic. No, none of that saves you. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ saves the sinner. What you need is for the water of his word to wash over your soul, to bring you back to the thing that saved you initially, and for that, you need the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Friends, you are going to have conflicts in this life. You're going to suffer. You are going to be disappointed. You are going to encounter failure. You are going to encounter setbacks, 
trials, things are not going to work out the way that you wish they would, and everybody is going to surround you to tell you how to make sense of it all by building you up and putting you on a pedestal. Let our hope as a church be to stay corporately unified and mature. Christ, to whom shall I go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Just as guilty as this as anybody else. And to that I want to humbly throw myself on the carpet with my brothers and sisters and say, if this is true of anyone in here, if we have let too much water in the boat, if we have been sold a lie and have chewed on it too long, that religion is consumeristic, if we have forgotten the radical call that Christ has placed on us as a church, will you repent with me today? That times of refreshing will overwhelm our church like a flood and that we will be able to follow Christ wherever he takes us. Heavenly Father, only you can bring true repentance. So I just ask this morning, and I pray what David would pray when he veered. God, create in our church a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit in us. Do not banish us from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from us. Restore the joy of your salvation to us and give us a willing spirit. If you were to do that, Lord, we'd go anywhere with you. We'd go to our deaths with you. We'd live our lives with you. That's all we hope for in this life. Living on life with Christ as our Savior and our Lord and our King. Please make it so today in Jesus' name.